Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us on the line today from Cape Town, South Africa, is Professor Renata Schoolman, who is in private practice as a general psychiatrist. She heads up the Healthcare Leadership MBA specialization stream at the University of Stellenbosch Business School. She serves on advisory boards of several pharmaceutical companies. She is the convener of the Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder Special Interest Group of the South African Society of Psychiatrists, a founder of the Goldilocks and the Bear Foundation, and she has recently been appointed on the Ministerial Advisory Board for Mental Health. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good afternoon or morning or evening, wherever you are, listeners. Prof. Skoman, starting with your primary discipline of psychiatry, which centers on mental health, please can you share some of the types of conditions that you treat? We see the most common mental health disorder, which is mainly anxiety and mood disorders. But then through the years, my practice has also focused a lot on cognitive disorders, specifically then attention deficit hyperactivity disorders, which previously was thought to be a condition of childhood. But we now know it's a lifespan disorder that also affects adults. Do you think that social media is part of a contributing factor because there's so many stimuli that it draws your attention away from focus? Absolutely. And I think that's very important when we look at diagnosing ADHD is that it is a lifespan disorder. So it's something that starts in early childhood. It doesn't suddenly develop during lockdown or COVID. And also part of the diagnostic criteria is it needs to be across domains. So it needs to affect your work and occupational functioning, school functioning, but also functioning in personal life, interpersonal life and emotional life. So it's definitely not just the academic or work-related problem. And part of the criteria is also that it's not only due to circumstantial factors or a sudden onset. So it's not just because you are excessively using screens and also having poor discipline in terms of multitasking or just poor work ethics. So it's very important that when we see someone that presents with ADHD, and especially in adulthood, Up to 80% of people that present with, I think I have ADHD, actually are either sleep deprived or they have poor technology habits, for example, multitasking or excessive screen time, or they actually have other mental health conditions such as anxiety or depression or even substance use disorders. The scope of, let's say, non-communicative diseases or disorders is really extending and people do have to pay more attention to them. Because we're a gender-based show and naturally women form the bulk of our audience, are there any psychiatric disorders that women are potentially more at risk from? In general, we do see more women presenting for psychiatric or psychological support for especially anxiety and mood disorders. There is a suggestion that we do see mood disorders more often in women, and that has to do with our biology and our hormones, because we know through our life, 
during our periods, during childbirth and postnatal period, and also in menopause, especially when your estrogen levels fluctuate, it influences your serotonin production, which then make you more prone to mood disorders or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, postnatal depression, etc. However, we also know that women are more able or willing to seek support. And I feel sorry for men in that way. They still have the social thing that I need to be strong. I'm not allowed to speak up when I'm suffering. There's also conditions that's often missed in women. And for example, ADHD, because in the media, it's often portrayed as the naughty, hyperactive, boisterous boy that have ADHD. And girls, even at a young age, are better able to manage their behavior. So they might be very hyper, but they are able to sit on their hands in class and just fidget softly. And they're also more prone to just have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, the inattentive type, or what some people call ADD then. So they are quiet daydreamers, they're not a problem in class, and they just slowly disappear and never reach their full potential. And by the time they present in adulthood, it's often because of comorbid disorders such as depression or anxiety or just living a life of failure, never achieving their potential and almost believing the script of I'm stupid or I'm not good at maths. And I believe part of the problem that we see globally in, in women and young girls believing that they are not good in the same subjects might be attributed to ADHD that's been missed because, for example, in mathematics, it's very important that you need to be able to concentrate step by step in terms of the process. And if you don't grasp that, that can obviously affect your performance. That's incredibly sad. I'm, you know, literally getting goosebumps here of thinking how many people have missed out, missed out on opportunities because there actually isn't something wrong with them. It's a case of being able to manage their condition. And if that had been managed at the right age, they would truly realize their potential. Absolutely. The, the final thing that we more often see in these days in women is actually substance abuse disorders as well. And where males are more prone, I almost want to say to disinhibiting substances, alcohol or, or stimulants, women often abuse painkillers or sedatives, but there's also an increased use and misuse of alcohol, which I find extremely worrisome. It's such a fascinating field. What made you decide to specialize in psychiatry? It was a bit of a by default that it happens. Medicine wasn't my first choice. I would have loved to do veterinary science, but my parents didn't have money for me to leave the town where I grew up to go away. Then I really would have loved to do architecture. My dad was a boulder and there's always this tension between them. So he wasn't supportive of that. I would have loved to be a music teacher, but I was playing good piano and recorder and all my instruments, but I would never have been a performer. So eventually I studied medicine and the first year two or three, I didn't particularly enjoy. It was very theoretical. And then in my fourth year, we had psychology and something just clicked. And eventually I ended up studying psychology parallel to medicine and I completed my master's in psychology as well. But then I discovered psychiatry and I just loved it because I realized, or in my view is that everything that makes us human is between our ears, our head, the way that we think, how everyone is diverse. Diversity is what's going on in your brain. Even if you look on the surface identical, you're different. 
And I'm fascinated by that thought processes that people have, the way that the emotions work, the way that they see the world. And I also realized that, that what I maybe also love about psychiatry is that it's such an intimate field. There's very few disciplines in medicine where within the first 10 minutes, you really divulge your most intimate thoughts and feelings. I think the thing that comes closest to that is maybe gynecology, and I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and in this field, it, every single person is unique. So yes, you've got that diversity factor, but each person is an individual. Today, we're talking to Professor Renata Schoolman, a private practice psychiatrist who also heads up the Healthcare Leadership MBA specialization stream at the University of Stellenbosch, serves on several boards, just to mention a few caps. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. When I was researching for our interview, I was looking at some statistics from the World Health Organization, and it struck me, according to the data that was done in 2019, that one in every eight people, or 970 million people around the world, were living with a mental disorder, whether that's anxiety or depressive disorders being the most common ones. In 2020, when the pandemic hit, the number of people living with anxiety and depression disorders rose significantly, which is not surprising given the additional burden of the socioeconomic weight that people had to carry. The good thing I would say about the pandemic is that it's really highlighted mental health. It's being acknowledged and I would say to a certain extent destigmatized. I noticed that you've done some work into a concept called presenteeism, which refers to the experience of people being physically present, but mentally absent. Please, can you unpack this issue more for us? So what it means, what are some of the causes, and importantly, the resolutions? I think it's important to distinguish between Presenteeism is a concept which, as you mentioned, it's being mentally or emotionally absent due to stress, mental health conditions, or physical illness. So even it can happen in the virtual world. So we might be in a Zoom meeting, but you have flu and you might have taken medication that makes that you are feeling groggy and drowsy, not able to concentrate. So in that sense, that is also presenteeism. It has to be distinguished from poor work ethics. And there's many people that say when they work from home in a Zoom meeting, oh, they just switch off the video and they clean the office or they switch off the video and they cook in the meantime. Now that is poor work ethics. That is not presenteeism. So presenteeism has to do with your health, whether it's physically or mentally. There's a few factors that contribute um, in, in physical environment and then in the virtual environment. And the socioeconomic circumstances definitely contribute where people are very, very worried of taking sick leave, even if they are entitled to it because they are scared of being replaced or lose their job. It might also be that you don't have sick leave, that you're a wage earner or no work, no pay. So people can't afford to stay off work. There's also, especially in the virtual environment, because we do not have very innovative ways at this stage of measuring productivity. Often employers sees productivity as you are locked on, you are at your computer and online, or you physically bum in the seat at the office. And we should move to output rather as a measure of productivity. So those factors definitely contribute. And I think the virtual environment make it worse because previously, if you were ill 
and you were coughing, for example, you would be staying at home, not to infect your colleagues. And I'm also now a bit guilty about it because when you're ill, you can just move all your meetings online or see do your consultations online. Now, that's great because you remain sort of productive, but you're not necessarily able to take the best decisions if you're not feeling well. And also, you are supposed to take care of yourself because the sooner you recuperate, the sooner you can function optimally again and be back at work. All of those points are are really interesting and particularly the view of when you are physically present or virtually logged in, it doesn't mean you're productive. And I completely agree with you that really we should be driving towards outputs. Those are the metrics. Those are the measures. That's the, the quantification of value. Staying with the stream of looking after yourself and being productive, one of the most challenging components that I find within the, the gender equality practices or, or principles is talking about achieving a work-life balance and at the same time also pursuing career development. As a successful woman who's worked exceptionally hard to build her career, what's your perspective of this? It is a challenge. And I think the one thing that's important to know is there's no such thing as a 50-50%. Work-life balance doesn't mean 50% at your work and 50% at home, especially if you're building your career or depending on your position and depending on how many fires you even, you know, rot you have in the fire, your, your work-life balance might mean that you're working a 16-hour day, sleeping six hours and maybe two hours for the rest. But work-life balance means that somewhere in this, you carve time to energize yourself. For me, the two things that's very important there, if we look at self-care, it refers to sleeping enough, exercising, stimulating your brain or educating yourself, your diet, making time to socialize and also paying attention to spirituality. I always call it the seeds of self-care. However, I do find my own life and also what research shows, if you only invest in one of those, exercise is the best one. So if you can just carve out 30 minutes a day exercising, there's ample evidence that it's benefiting your brain, it's benefiting your emotions and your physical health. So I'm dedicated to exercising at least 30 minutes a day. And for me, it's easier to do it daily than to say five times a week. I like routine, but it helps me. I I think better. I can concentrate. Things is not so overwhelming. You don't fret so much. So so that's the one tip I have is self-care, but decide what works for you. It's not necessarily viable to go every day to the gym. It doesn't work for me, especially now I'm a new mom at my ripe advanced age. I have a little two-year-old. So it's really interesting to carve that time. The second thing for me is really to be aware and really to reflect in terms of what is draining your energy and what is refueling you. And I, years ago, read a quote that said, if it's not useful, joyful, or beautiful, get rid of it. And it sounds very simple, but it's something that you can apply to your desk if we have a habit of collecting or warding. If you ward, it actually drains your energy. So make sure what you have, that it's really fulfilling one of that three criteria. But the same is true for the commitments that you have for the boards that you sit on, for the additional projects that you take on, for friendships. And if a friendship, and it sounds very, 
you know, initially I thought, oh, it sounds very selfish to say, if the friendship doesn't serve a purpose, let it dwindle. But if a friendship only drains you, or a relationship only drains you, and there's no joy, beauty, or usefulness in it, then it's not meant to be. And in that way, you're free time to invest in something that energizes you or that gives you meaning. And you can be very, very busy, and you can have a lot of projects and a lot of roles and a lot of jobs, but if there's meaning in it, it will never drain you. It will energize you and you will get more done. And the last one, that's really for me one of my top three tips, is to understand that you don't have to be perfect. You can only do the best you can in the moment. I can never be a perfect mother, but in the moments that I'm spending with my boy, I can just try to be the best I can at this stage. So put down your phone and spend time with your child for that five minutes, if it's five minutes. The same, if I might not be the best athlete, but I do what I can at that moment. And your seasons in your life will change. So at certain times in your life, you will be better at sports. At certain times in your life, you will bake beautiful cakes. In certain times of your life, you will sit on a lot of advisory boards. And then when you do it, do it to the best of your ability. If you feel that you're doing it only 50%, then rather not do it. Those are such great tips and so accessible. Bringing to light, the reality is that in our day, we may only have 24 hours, but it's not about thinking of this carving out 50% here, 20% for this, but it's thinking in, in broader terms and how you develop the, the quality component to service each of your goals. You are listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity. And today we're talking to Professor Renata Schoolman, a private practice psychiatrist who also heads up the Healthcare Leadership MBA specialization stream at the University of Stellenbosch, serves on several boards, just to mention a few caps. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof Schoolman, as I mentioned, you wear a lot of caps. In the introduction, I spoke about heading up the healthcare leadership MBA specialization stream, sitting on advisory boards, being a member of the South African Society of Psychiatrists, and more recently being nominated to sit on the ministerial advisory board for mental health in South Africa. Given that, I want to ask you about concepts of fraternity and also academic citizenship, because all of these roles are really largely about giving back and growing respective communities. I think it's academic environments can be very cutthroat. I've been in the academic environment for many, many years. I completely stepped away for a year and a half, and then I started feeling my brain is rotting. I just had to go and study again and just had to have that stimulation of knowledge and new things. There's a lot of competition. It's difficult, I think, for a woman to, to build your academic career. I did it the wrong, well, the non-traditional way around. Um, I become a late mother. I didn't, didn't have a little one in the younger years. So I did build my career first. It wasn't necessarily by choice. I think times has been changing. There is more support for women. Um, there's also, as you mentioned, there's laws and things that that encourage women and these bursary programs that really help women with career progression. But I do find, and I think it has changed, but 20 years ago when I started academic career, there was very few 
role models. There were very few senior ladies that I could learn from and inspire to. And there was also a little bit of what they then termed the Queen Bee Syndrome. So women were also very threatened by younger women. They felt replaceable. They were also worried about ageism. I do believe that times have changed. I think there's way more women now in different times in their life and way more women that is prepared to invest back in mentorship, in role models, in career development. I think what, what I'm worried about in the academic fraternity is still inequality. It's still very subtle, subtle discrimination. Um, and I almost want to say bullying is still prevalent. Tell us more about the subtleties. Sometimes because things are subtle, people don't necessarily get it or, or see it or recognize it. So bullying sometimes can be very blatant. It can be that women are excluded. You might have a good contribution or comment in a meeting, but it's sort of brushed away. And then your male colleague next to you say the same thing and it's acceptable. What happens often is that there will be this soft remarks that uh, she's, she can't come in this morning because the child is ill. And instead of recognizing that the mum in question didn't necessarily have the support system of someone else that could look after the child at the, or that could take the child to the doctor, or she might be married, but the spouse career is still seen as the dominant career in the household. So mom must always do the caring. Instead of recognizing that, it's almost stated as, you know, she's a mother, we can't actually rely on her. Or the concept is there when you become a mother, and I've, I've felt that myself, it's like, oh, so now you're going to be like the other mothers and your career is going to be second. And since I've become a mom, I really don't think I've been less invested in any of my commitments. It's just I have something else that's also very important in my career, but it doesn't mean my career is now secondary. And it's very easy to, to assume that for women, their career is always secondary to their family responsibilities. And I believe both can be extremely important for you. You don't have to choose between the two. So it's that subtle remarks. Um, something else that happened is if, if you talk to a line manager at work and you say that maybe you feel a bit overwhelmed, is it possible to really look at your duties? It's very often easy to say for the line manager, oh, yeah, but you have so many other things on your plate. Where if it was a male, hmm, can we get a PA for you? Can someone take over your administrative duties? Now, so things that, like that still happen. And you might leave the office as a woman thinking or walking to your car crying, but you might walk to your car and think, oh, there's something wrong with me. I don't cope with this workload. Why does men cope with this workload? But it is clear that the research has shown that women invest so many more hours in their role as a mother or in the house in addition to their career. So we don't do less. We actually do more, but we sometimes punished for that. You've really highlighted the realities, and frequently I look at United Nations women's statistics, and one of the things and uh, that I recall reading, maybe it was about a year or so ago, was this disproportionate load of women doing unpaid labor in the home, which needs to be done. I mean, you, you need to clean the house. You need to have food on the table. It needs to be presentable. 
compared to men. And then at the same time, trying to accommodate a, a work schedule and looking after sick kids, looking after aging parents, all of these responsibilities falling upon women's shoulders. Even if you have a supportive partner or a good support system, there's still some things that only a mom can do. So, I mean, I, I think it's beautiful that we can breastfeed. <laughs> Earlier, we spoke about attention deficit disorder with a, a prevalence, particularly towards children and being able to diagnose it at an early stage. You're the co-founder of the Goldilocks and the Bear Foundation, which is a nonprofit ADHD screening and early intervention service in underprivileged communities. Please tell us how this initiative came into being and what you aim to achieve with it. So it was a serendipitous sequence of events. I used to run a bit more competitively when I was younger. And then in 2017, a friend of mine approached me and he asked me if I would partner with him in a three-day team event. It was a 100K race over three days, trail running. And I said, I don't run competitively anymore. And he's one of these guys that likes to podium. I said, okay, I'll do it, but only if we can do it for a cause. And he said, you choose the cause. And I said, you know, when I was working in the public sector, we barely saw and knew about ADHD. And then I went to private practice. And what I see and what we know from the international literature and stats, it's 5 to 16% of school-age children are affected with ADHD. And often when they present to me as a children, they only present to me when they already struggle with a poor self-esteem, academic failure, anxiety, school refusal, or they are labeled as naughty and stupid and lazy and whatever. And I really developed a passion and I, I, I love children and I love development. And I, I believe we need to build resilient children to have resilient adults and communities. And I realized that if this is so difficult for people to access mental health care for children in the private sector, how big is the problem not in the public sector where there's no budget, there's no human resources, never mind medical and financial resources. And if you look in South Africa, only about 5% of the health budget go towards mental health. And it definitely doesn't focus on children's mental health, never mind ADHD in children. So we looked around and there was no other foundation or NGO that do this type of work. And then we started the foundation. I didn't realize how much work it's going to be, but it grew through the years. We have wonderful volunteers that's helping. So we have volunteer occupational therapists, psychologists, nurses, optometrists, um, audiologists. And what we do, we partnered with the Department of Education, Department of Health and Department of Social Development. And we go to underprivileged schools in our community. We train teachers, we train parents. And all children with emotional or behavioral or academic problems are referred to the foundation. We screen them and make sure then that they do get the necessary interventions, therapy and support that they need. Our bigger mission is to remove mental health barriers to education. Such an important piece of work that you're doing there to serve communities in need. Today, we're talking to Professor Renata Schoolman, a private practice psychiatrist who also heads up the Healthcare Leadership MBA Specialization stream at the University of Stellenbosch, serves on several boards, just to mention a few caps. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. 
Prof Skoman, turning towards more of a personal perspective, one of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show is about their factors of success. In your opinion, what would you say have been some of the key drivers to your success? I think many women that you've interviewed would have affirmed that we often come from backgrounds where things weren't that easy. I think people very easily look at me, say, yeah, you're an Afrikaans, white woman, life was easy. And I think that's an assumption. And it's maybe also one of the challenges that you deal with because of that assumption. I can't say I grew up ever wanting, but I can say we had a very, very frugal life. Um, I attended a small farm school um, <laughs> with not a lot going for it. But at the same time, it was a nurturing environment, which was a privilege. Um, I've been subjected to unfairness and bullying at the age of nine, which I think planted the seed for me for fighting my life for fairness and equity. I'm, I'm forever fighting other people's battles. And I suppose that's part of what I'm doing as well with the foundation and the, the boards I'm sitting on. At the age of 16, um, very, very accidentally, I perceived that I've emotionally injured someone. What has happened, it was my 16th birthday. I was privileged enough to be able to invite some friends over for a little garage party. And because the numbers were limited, I had to choose who to invite. And I was in a girls' school. We were a group of friends. But I ended up inviting my friends who had boyfriends or who were dancing. The one girl didn't have a boyfriend and she was not dancing. And after the weekend, she was in tears. And then I realized how I hurted her by excluding her. It bugged me my whole life. At our 20-year school reunion, I went to her and I apologized. And she had no idea what I'm talking about. So I was carrying that with me. But I think at the age of 16, in a stage of your life, we're all teenagers. We're all a bit self-centered at that age. I, I think I just became so aware of how our actions, even inadvertently, can make other people feel. And I think that's why it's driving my one other value of compassion. So... It sounds like two small incidents, but I think it really, really crafted my value system for me later in my life. I went through the death of two fathers. I lost both my fathers. And I called them both my fathers um, because my second father was also for 20 years my father until he passed away. So the absence of really a protector of someone is something that I also felt I think a father is often a shield for a girl as she grows up. And also in our adult life, it's a person that you trust. So that was difficult for me. I've also been subjected to many health issues, quite serious ones in my younger years. And that is the one thing that drives me to really make the most of every single moment in your life. You never know when you won't have the opportunity to do something. So if you wonder, should you do it? Yes, do it. You don't want to have regrets later for not doing it. So I think grabbing the day, my, my commitment, um, my perseverance, maybe my fierce independence, um, but I think really the value system. And yes, I'm religious. I, I think that's my foundation where I'm coming from. But, you know, you can pray as much as you want. If you don't do something, nothing is going to happen. Thank you very much for sharing those personal experiences and how they've been a foundation to you, but not an impediment, how you've used them to move on. 
recognizing issues. So if it is about bullying, if it is about an injustice to someone and in later life, making sure that doesn't happen to other people. One other incident that I can tell you about, it's a bit personal, but maybe that is also a, a good message to people that, that good things come from bad things. Um, in 2013, it was a particularly difficult year in terms of my health, in terms of personal stresses, losses. Work-wise, it was just a difficult year. And I ended up having a mountain bike accident and I fractured my neck. But the week before the accident, I remember very clearly praying and saying, God, I know that you say that whatever comes in, you know, you will never bring something into our lives that we can't handle together. But hell, I'm not iron woman. You know, but, but this. And then the next week, I had a mountain bike accident and I fractured my neck and I had to get a fusion. And I now have a piece of iron in my neck. So I can never, ever, ever ask God again and tell him I'm not you know, do you think I'm Iron Woman? Because I think God has a very good sense of humor. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. I also wanted to ask you, who've been some of the strong female role models in your life? It's very difficult for me to highlight one or two, because I think you learn different things from different people. And one person, you can really admire one thing, but at the same time, there might be something that you don't want to be like. But there's very strong ladies in my life that played a role, and they might not be famous people. My mom's grit, definitely, her perseverance, her commitment. Um, but also, I, I had a psychiatrist that's older than me, a very, very good friend, that for me, she was really a role model when I started. I want to say playing a bit more on the public platform and in leadership roles within the psychiatric fraternity, where she was a shield for me. And she would often say, Renata, you're feeling very passionate about it, but be careful, it's seen as you're challenging people. I love asking questions. I ask hundreds of questions, and my goal behind questions is to understand, but it's often perceived as challenging authority. And especially in a male-dominant society, you, you get pushback. I also have a very strong female um, colleague at the business school, which is also older than me, that is really a role model for me in terms of her business acuity and also her efficiency. But at the same time, I think she can learn from me in terms of self-care. So that's why I say you can have one role model, but they're never perfect. The one thing that I stood, stood out for me is that my, my mom's friends and my mom's sense of community, and it's also maybe a generation. When I grew up, there was always women together. They always sat together with a piece of needlework or sewing. They were never idle. They crafted, they were gardening, you know, or self-sufficient in terms of their, what, what they eat. And I learned from that community of friends and many of my mom's friends I'm still very close to to this day. And I, I think what I learned from that is that you need a community of women, whether it is in your, your, your mom's friends, whether it's your sisters, which I'm not privileged to have, whether it is cousins, whether it is a formal association. I belong to the WPO, the Women Presidents Organization, where there's a community of business women. But you need other women in your life and you can learn from all of them. And then maybe... The other real role model I have is the Proverbs 31 woman. And I think no one can ever live up to that standard, but it's something that I would aspire to. 
Lastly, as we close out today's conversation, please can you share a few words of inspiration which you'd like to pass on to girls and women in Africa that are listening to the show? I think there's three things that stand out for me. The one is never stop reading. No one can ever take knowledge away from you. So reading, learning, you doesn't need to, to follow formal education and plenty of degrees, um, but never stop learning. And yeah, as I said, no one can ever take knowledge away from you. The second one, I'm not a feminist and I don't want to be treated like my male colleagues. I still like to be a woman. So for me, never try to lead like a male. Never try to model your behavior on a male colleagues, but be a woman. Keep your softness. That's what's making us strong. That's what's making us resilient. Be proud. Be proudly a woman. Be feminine. Wear your pink. Wear your flowers. Whatever rocks your boat. You know, but keep that softness and femininity. That's what we need. That's what's making women leaders effective. Because we're different from men, not because we try to be like them. And the third one, people often talk about the glass ceiling in your career or the glass ceiling for women. I don't believe in it. I believe what's holding women back is the sticky floor. It's the things that's in our head. It's the beliefs that we have about ourselves and about society. So it's the sticky floor. There's no glass ceiling. Very poignant words of inspiration there to follow. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. My pleasure and thank you for the privilege. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and we have been talking to Professor Renata Schoolman, a private practice psychiatrist who heads up the Healthcare Leadership MBA specialization stream at the University of Stellenbosch Business School, serves on several boards and is part of the Ministerial Advisory Board for Mental Health.